was trying to come up with a, uh, a, a good title for um, the service this morning, for the sermon, and uh, I don't know why I came up with this. It's a very short passage. Uh, we've only got, you know, from 18 to 23, and, and, and I'm sitting there, but the more that I contemplated this, I thought of radical Christianity. <laughs> I don't know, what do you think of when you hear the word radical? Chris, what do you think about When somebody says radical, what do you think? Out of control. Out of control. <laughs> okay. Uh, anybody else want to join in with, uh, Bob, what do you think when you hear radical? Pretty good description. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that. I would label God as being out of control, but uh, anyway, I did. <laughs> I did go to a dictionary. Here's a, here's a dictionary uh, definition: thoroughgoing or extreme, especially as regards change from accepted or traditional norms. Um, forms I, I, norms is norm is something that we are accustomed to because it's a tradition within, and we feel comfortable with it. And when you start to break out of that, whether it's a norm or a form, um, then it's considered to be extreme or out of control. Um, forming a basis or foundation. I thought that's interesting. The actual word itself means that it is of or going to the root or the origin. And I like that definition because when we start looking at Christianity, we want to get back to where the start was and what was going on then and how does that either uh, fit in with our norms or our forms or our traditions or the things that we're comfortable with or how does it challenge those very things. And uh, so when I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, at different, when I look at God, he is the original one, right? <laughs> He's the one <clears throat> who created it all. He created us and, 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 and put us in the families that we're in. And we've, we've developed certain things that we've learned from our families that we consider to be uh, norms for our lives. Now, in, in the process of this, I notice that we can become very comfortable with things that may or may not be uh, honoring to God. It, it's very possible, isn't it? It's just that that's the way we've always done it. That's the way we feel comfortable. Whether it pleases God or not is another thing. Take a look, for example, at the Hebrew children who were in uh, uh, slavery in Goshen in Egypt, and they only knew tyrants and, and uh, being abused and everything else. But you have God show up in the middle of that, and he shows up in a radical form to demonstrate that he is the Lord of all and not even the most powerful men in the world can do anything <laughs> to change or alter what God says is going to happen. And so in a powerful, 
powerful deliverance out of Egypt. He brings them out, talking about being radical. <laughs> I mean, you look at, at the plagues that, that came upon Egypt, and he says, let my people go, you know, and he means it. And, and when Pharaoh finally lets it happen and he wants to change his mind, he and everybody else in his army drown in the Red Sea. And so here you've got this incredible, radical event where God shows up, and he takes the people out and in a radical way brings them out to a place to worship him where he's going to give them his law. I mean, he's going to, to show up in a powerful way. And what happens is that they want to go back to Egypt <laughs> because that's what they knew and what they were comfortable with. Even though it was bad for them, they would rather have gone back than be radical in their trust of God in the desert. In the midst of a desert, can you trust God? In the midst of darkness, can you trust the one who redeems you and saves you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? So here, in the midst of our text that we're coming to, we're dealing with a God who is fundamental, the origin one, and he wants us to be able to trust him in every circumstance in our lives. He wants... I am on, okay. <laughs> you, you hear me from the speaker? I, I can't hear from... Anyway, okay. So the exciting thing about being radical is not that it becomes out of control but it's a return to our relationship and our roots in Jesus and our trust in him and our willingness to be obedient to the things that he shows us to do. Even if it goes against what we have become accustomed to in our lives. That's what makes it radical because it's, it's almost extreme that, that God would ask me to leave my home gives me all the treasures of Egypt, and then puts me in a desert? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and, and so in the midst of that, you, you're sitting there wondering, um, is God going to be able to uh, come through? Well, let's take a look at our text. And we're looking at Acts 18. And beginning at verse 18. And Paul, uh, you, you remember that uh, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. We looked at this last week. And uh, uh, he, he was told by the Lord that he had to stay there. He stayed there for a year and a half. He said, I've got a lot of people in this city. Uh, he had problems with the synagogue. And so he shook off his clothes and and he said, you know, you've rejected God, not just me. And he goes next door <laughs> to the house of uh, Titius Justice and, and starts a Bible school where he teaches daily. And when, uh, when Timothy and Silas come, his supporters, they go to work and help take care of the team. Now, Paul... Um, having remained many days longer after the commotion uh, where they 
tried to take him to the pro-council, and so there was this big commotion, and he wasn't interested. He said, deal with this yourselves. What, 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 it's not my deal. <laughs> and Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Shenshria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, do you see all the radicalness in there? <laughs> I'm going to have fun this morning. Let's, let's just take a look, first of all, at where Paul is. Paul's over here on the left-hand side of your screen in Corinth, right? And he goes down to Shantria, and when he gets there, he shaves his head and takes off in a boat. And in this boat... I'm not too sure who all is on the boat with him, but normally it would be his team, which means that would be um, Timothy and Silas and Luke. And then specifically he mentions, who does he mention? Thank you very much. That is what's the first major radical thing. <laughs> Anyway, he gets to Ephesus, he goes into the uh, synagogue there, and they ask him to stay on, and he says, well, I'll come back if God wills, and then he leaves. And now, we have just spent from Acts 15 to Acts 18, going through all of this route from Antioch up through here, actually he went up in there and came back down here, ends up in in Troas, remember, he's wandering around trying to figure out what God wants him to do. He goes across from Troas via Samothrace to Philippi. And from Philippi, after starting and getting thrown in jail, he takes off and he, he passes this way to Thessalonica. And up in Thessalonica, they, he's there for just a couple of weeks, starts a new church, has to leave and goes to Berea where they are uh, checking him out in Berea. So sorry here. And from Berea, he leaves there and makes his way down to Athens, and he's gone on to Corinth, and we've spent all this time reading about all these things that he's done. The first trip that we saw where he went to, uh, he went from here to Cyprus, and then he went up to here to Perga and came back this way. When we read about that, we went through from Acts 13 to 15. And we, we hear about people getting healed. We read about people having all these events and, and the troubles that stirred up and everything. 
And now he's taking a trip. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that Luke is not with him. Because Luke is a pretty good um, reporter of what's going on. As a matter of fact, he's going to report in the next section about what happens in Ephesus after Paul has left. So I, I, re, I feel very confident Luke stayed in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. Perhaps Timothy and Silas, we don't know, went with him, but he doesn't normally travel alone. So they leave Ephesus and they make their way down to Caesarea. And from Caesarea, they go on, this is interesting, it says they go up to the hill of the Lord. That's always going up to Jerusalem. So he goes up from Caesarea to Jerusalem down here at the bottom. And then it says he goes down and he makes his way back to Antioch. And the last time he was in these two cities, he was there with Barnabas. And I can imagine that when he gets back to those cities, somebody's going to say, where's Barnabas? What's going on? <laughs> and he goes back, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is your first encounter when you get back to Jerusalem, to the church, the mother church, where it all started. And when you go back to Antioch, the church where you had your big split, and you took off and went your own way, and now you're coming back to those two places. Why does Luke not report what happened? <laughs> I'm sitting there going, I'm interested. I, I really want to know, how did, he, how did he deal with the relationships with Peter and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem? How did he get along with, with the uh, other leadership that he left behind in Antioch. What happened when he goes up to tell them what God has done on his trip all the way through uh, Turkey and then up through Greece and coming all the way back? Why? Why, does, why is there no historical record of all that? Just says, well, he went here and went there and went there and then, then he took off. It actually starts <laughs> to say... It actually continues to say that he continues to go through the Galatian region. This is the Galatian region. And here's Phrygia. So he's making his way back up to Antioch and Pisidia. And you may remember that in Antioch and Pisidia, that was the first time where he said, I'm not going to the Jews anymore, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he's done that twice. He's done it twice. <laughs> he did it. He did it in Antioch and Pisidia, and he's done it now again in Corinth. And when he gets down to Shenshria, what does he do? He shaves his head. Why, when he has said, I'm leaving to focus on the ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles, does he do something that is very much in line with keeping a Jewish vow, following the Old Testament, to shave his head and make his way. I presume there's a reason why he doesn't want to stay in Ephesus, because he wants to make one of the feasts that is going on in Jerusalem. He wants to be there for the feast, and he's going to come back as a representative 
of the Jewish hierarchy. He is a student of Gamaliel. He is a proper Jew. Now, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, excuse me, Paul, <laughs> explain something to me. <laughs> here, here you are making a vow. You want to keep your vow and you're making your way because of this vow back to Jerusalem uh, and he doesn't tell us what the vow is. Uh, is it a vow of humility or a vow of, of submission? Or a, does he want to submit to the leadership there and tell them what's gone on? And does he want to confess the problem that he had with Barnabas and, and his problems with it? I don't know what... I, I, the scripture doesn't tell us. But I'm sitting there saying... This fellow has focused his entire attention saying, God has sent me to the Gentiles to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And now he does a very Jewish thing. And when he gets to Ephesus, the first thing he does is go to the synagogue. I, I can see that there are, in this whole event, there are three things that, that are really significant to me. And so I'm going to look at them because I think that they are radical. And the first one is that he is radical in leadership development. That's the first thing. When we meet Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, it says he comes to meet Aquila, who is a tent maker. And his wife is Priscilla. When they leave on a missionary event where they are going to start a new church in a major city in Asia Minor, when they make that trip, they go with Priscilla and Aquila. The woman comes first as being the teacher. And I... I simply look at that and I'm going, wait a minute, you are going in the face of every traditional understanding of the role of a submissive woman who's not allowed to do anything and you are giving her the lead role in this team. You always have in the, in, in the, in the course of, of looking at the sons of... Uh, of Jacob, you always have Reuben come first. It's always the oldest son, the firstborn. The one who's the leader is put first. That's why it was Barnabas and Paul that set out. And later, when, when, when Barnabas had trained Paul, it became Paul and Barnabas. When they go back to Jerusalem, it's Barnabas and Paul. And so whenever the lead person is there, their name comes first. But when it comes to these two, it's interesting that from now on, Priscilla is going to be the lead. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, this is radical because of my whole understanding of how things are done is very different to this. The, the women are practically owned by their husbands. And, and, and the whole relationship is that you know, the, the, the woman doesn't have the ministry. It's the men who have the ministry. And yet, something has happened in the whole process here. 
And he is being radical because he's pointing out the fact that God treats everyone the same. Now that is quite different to everything within the mentality that you're growing up in. It goes completely against what, what feels to be right. But it goes back to say, this is the gift that God gave and that God continues to give through this person to others. And God is the one who chooses whom he gives which gifts he wants to, and he gives those gifts not for your benefit, but for the benefit of the church. Suddenly, there is a basic change in thinking, not in terms of who is the leader and who is built up and <coughs> who's number one. And <coughs> all, that's not the issue. Jesus is number one. It's his church. And when he starts to pour out his gifts that he gives, he gives to his sons and his daughters as he would like to. The gift is not something that elevates the person. I use this illustration sometimes. I don't know if it's a good illustration or not. But if, if I were uh, to give Chris a million dollars, what do we know about him? You know that I'm generous. <laughs> Maybe I'm silly to give a million dollars to Chris. But, but you see, you, you know something about me, about my generosity, but you don't know anything about his character. You don't know if he's going to use it or abuse it or what he's going to do with it. You don't know anything about him. You see, the, 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 the person who gives the gifts, that's the one that you know something about. If God gives you a gift, whichever gift it is. Doesn't, he's the one who distributes his gifts, his ministries, his talents. He gives them. I, I, I enjoy singing. I can't sing as nice as Diana, I, that, that, you know. But I, I certainly can appreciate her gift, and her gift blesses. You, you see, the, 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 the reason why God gave her that gift was not so that we can honor and, and rejoice, oh, how wonderful she is. No, God gave her that gift for all of us. And we all are blessed by it. Something begins to happen when I understand that the giver is the one who should be exalted here. And you should say, isn't that incredible what God can do through Bill and Kay? Isn't it absolutely amazing? <laughs> I mean, the, the fact that God should choose them <laughs> and then use them in that way. Suddenly, you see, the gifts are not for the person who has them. The gifts are what are being given to the rest of the church. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the Lord of the church who determines that. And the radicalness of Paul is that he has identified the gift that Priscilla had and he is bound by the giver of the gift to make sure that her gift is going to be recognized and seen. He didn't do it. 
to raise her up. He did it to raise up his church. <laughs> the, the gifts and the ministries that God have has are, are intended to equip us to do the ministry, all of us to do the ministry. Now, in, 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 so that's the first thing is that he spent a year and a half training them. And in that training time, in that period of training, this is where, um, this, this is the way Jesus puts it. Let me find the verse here. Jesus puts it this way. Now, he also spoke a parable to them. A person who is blind cannot guide another who is blind, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above the teacher, but everyone, when he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself says, when everybody has been fully trained, they're going to be like his teacher. When he's finished training his disciples, who are they going to be like? Like Jesus, his, their teacher. The whole focus, you see, is that when Jesus comes to develop leadership in people, he is changing, transforming them into his own image. And so Paul picking up on the model that Jesus has trained himself, turns around, spends a year and a half, and now he releases them to start a church in a new city, saying, I don't even know if I'm going to come back. But he's leaving his representatives there. And the exciting thing here is this, is that who does he trust? Who is he going to trust for the success of this new church? Who does Paul trust? Does he trust Priscilla and Aquila? <laughs> he's going to trust. He's going to trust the Lord of the Church to interact with Priscilla and Aquila to establish this church. It becomes one of the major churches of the of the early Christian life, and and even John the Apostle ends up becoming pastor there. Imagine the kind of impact that this church is going to have specifically in, in the Revelation where it talks about it. You see, the whole focus is that he not only is, trains people, imparts to them, gives them what he has, but when he has given it to them, he releases them into the ministry that God has for them, and he sets them free, those people, and that God will have the control over the, the entire ministry that they develop. I... I I hope you can see how radical that is. You see, when, when we go to school and stuff like that and you learn a trade, there's always somebody who, who's going to be there to either criticize or applaud what you're doing, and, and, and you can never actually seem to fill their shoes. <laughs> Somebody's always better. But in the life of the church, it doesn't matter how good you are. It matters whether your gift is being shared. The gift that God has given you, are you sharing that with the others in the church? Now then, if, if that wasn't uh, fun enough, here we go. Uh, the next one is radical cross-cultural ministry. You see, because he says 
I'm an apostle to the Gentiles doesn't mean that he's anybody. If they reject him, he's not going to spend any time with them. But when he starts off, he goes back to the way where he has always been, where he feels at home. But you know, we don't see how radically different a, a Jew is from a Gentile. Especially when you get up people who are worshiping hundreds of gods and here's a Jew that worships the one true God. And then, have you ever been around any of the uh, uh, Orthodox Jews? The oldest firstborn son has, lets his sideburns grow and then they wear these little yarmulkes and if they're at the wailing wall, they're praying like this, you know. They, and and, 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 and it, there are things that they, they're doing that, they, that are so different to the way we worship. But none of us here, anyway, worship in the same way that the folks in, in uh, uh, Greece were worshiping. If you go to a Greek Orthodox church, they don't even have pews. You stand the whole time. They have, they have a liturgy. If you, if you go to England and go to the Church of England, where there are some marvelous, wonderful Spirit-filled Christians, I love them. <laughs> but with their big cathedrals and their Book of Common Prayer, I, I practically memorized it for the communion service because it's exactly the same every Sunday. Exactly the same. doesn't change. One half hour, in and out, communion service, and, and it, it doesn't change. And, and we sit there and go, how do they manage that? How do they do that? And yet within all of these areas, there are people that God has called to be his people after his name. And Paul is absolutely incredible in his ability to move between the groups and, and still minister life, revival, hope, encouragement, He's not out there trying to build walls. He's tearing walls down and allowing people to experience God within their own culture. We have different cultures right around us. There are Christians here in black churches that are worshiping the same Jesus we're worshiping and they love the same Jesus that we love and the way in which they do it is a different tradition than the way we do it even though it may have come in the slave times out of the way the British were worshiping in this country. I, I studied a little bit of that. It was absolutely fascinating how they got their moans and how they got their songs and why their songs developed the way that they did in, in terms of the slave issues. But I, I, take, I take a look at all of that and the question is how do we build the church to recognize one another the way that Jesus recognizes everybody that's in his church. That is radical. 
It's radical because it's going back to the foundation that Jesus died for the whole world. He came to save the whole world. He came and his death was that all men should be saved. That's his desire. He's not as concerned about the method and the ways in which we do it, but the, the issue is that those who have been saved need to love one another because that's how you know that you're a disciple of Jesus. And the process here of, of learning how do we become radical in cross-cultural ministry is not just something for people who are on the mission field in Bangladesh or in Ukraine or, or wherever they're at. It's for us here when we encounter people who worship differently to the way that we worship. And our ability to love, encourage, strengthen, even in events like our, our uh, buses coming in June, our ability to share the life of Jesus See, God doesn't look at the color of our skin. He looks at our hearts. <laughs> it's true. Final thing is, we don't know a whole lot about this. But Paul was radical in his accountability. After going through this whole thing, he goes back to where it all started for him to give an account to the two churches that mattered most, who had commissioned him and launched him into the ministry that he was in. He comes to submit to their leadership, to give an account of what God has done. He did it when he came back from his first journey, and now when his second journey is finishing up, he comes back to where it all started, and he is willing to submit his entire experience to encourage the church to show them what God is doing. That's why I believe that, that Timothy and Silas were with him, at least up until that perspective, because uh, Silas was with him in Antioch and in Jerusalem, and Timothy joined them just after they left Antioch. But I, I, that's part of the team. Now, whether they're going to be part of the team in the third journey, I don't know. But, but you see, accountability is something that we probably don't like a whole lot but the truth is this, that Jesus was accountable to his Father. He said, I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. He goes back to his Father. He said, you gave me this work? I did it. Hello. He's being accountable to his Father in heaven. And then we take a look at this. Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. He's writing that to the Christians, by the way. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother, brother's or sister's way. He says, this is clear that we will give an account. Now, that's an important aspect for us not to forget. Why? Because it doesn't give us license to do what we want. <laughs> if you're going to give an account of your life one day, you, you, you ought to start now. 
to prepare for that. And that means that you end up learning how to be obedient more to what the Father says as to what your own desires are. I go back to, uh, to this radical accountability. And, I mean, that is a radical thing. I mean, it goes back to the origin, which says, I, I'm responsible to Jesus for my actions, my words, my deeds. And I want to be able to give a good account. So when we start talking about becoming like Jesus, when we want to be fully trained, when we want to grow in prayer, when we want to grow in our giftings, when we want to grow in seeing God show up in his presence in our midst, if we want to see all of those things, that's what it means to be radical because it might go against the way that we've always done it. But if it's going to exalt Jesus, if it's going to change my heart, my thinking, my mind, renewing me on the inside out, then let's do it. And, and those are things where it's not a question of me telling you how to live. Please don't get that idea. I'm not trying to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to tell you what the scriptures say. <laughs> that, that's my job. That's my gift. I, 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 I try hard. I do work at that. My wife knows I work at that. But I have to trust God to be your Lord. I got to trust Jesus to be your Lord, for him to speak to you. Instead of me telling you what to do, Jesus needs to tell you what to do. It's not up to a pastor to, to, to sort of tell folks what's happening <laughs> and how they got to do it. That's not, that's not the way the church works. If Jesus says he will build his church, then Lord, come and do it. <laughs> and wherever you're going to pour out gifts, help us all to see and recognize those gifts, to honor them and to encourage them and to see them blossom and grow. Let's encourage one another with words like that. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation and actually it's like, Lord, if I need to uh, become more like you, then, then please begin right here in my heart, in this place. I want to learn from you. I want to become like you. I want your word to find um, fertile ground 